Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, Julie and Ginger are going to be talking about secondary traumatic stress, often called compassion fatigue. Let's listen in and learn some important strategies to help ourselves and the other adults we care about be able to combat this toxic stress. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And we're excited to share with you from both our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it truly means to be attachment-focused, trauma-informed, and how we can help children impacted by early childhood trauma. Today, Ginger wants us to talk about something that's been on her mind, something that is very important, secondary traumatic stress. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. I don't even know if excited is the right word. It's a hard topic, but I feel like it's so important. And I feel like I've kind of been on this journey the last, I don't know, I would even say a couple of years learning more about it because it is such a pervasive topic that has affected so many people. I get asked a lot about it. I also feel like I haven't had all the answers. Like I've been trying to put all these puzzle pieces together because when I have learned about it, I feel like some things have been missing. And so I've just kind of been on this journey and I've been reading everything I can get my hands on. You know, for example, Dr. Mona Delahook, she talks about it in her book, Beyond Behaviors. And she tells us that self-care is important because we can help our children best when we are emotionally present for them. And that really struck me. And here's why. When the topic of self-care is brought up, I usually see reactions from people. There's overwhelm, one more thing on my plate. It just seems impossible. I can't do it. I've heard sometimes become kind of a bad word, you know, and I don't like that because from the minute I started into this work and, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this, that it's so important to talk about. And that's exactly what she's saying and not even saying all the different reasons, which I'm excited to get into, but that it's just critical to talk about, but it's been hard to talk about. I think as we go along here, you'll understand why I've had so much need to find out more about it and angst about talking about it. So in my journey, um, I've been going to a lot of conferences, speaking at conferences, but taking conference classes. And I attended a really good one that the Center of Trauma and Children from Kentucky talked about. So I want to use a lot of their information. And we've mentioned this book before, the burnout book by Amelia Nagoski and Emily Nagoski. It's phenomenal. It really is life-changing. And that's where I want to go with all of this. This information is life-changing because secondary traumatic stress is a very real thing, especially for caregivers and teachers who work with children who have been impacted by trauma. So listen up, we're talking about parents, but we're also talking about teachers, daycare, childcare providers, child welfare professionals, those working in the foster care system. It's a huge deal. Symptoms of secondary traumatic stress mimic those of PTSD. You may have heard of vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, burnout. Those are all titles. They mean maybe a little bit different things, but they all culminate into this secondary trauma. 
that if left untreated leads to just a whole host of problems, you know, physical illness, poor boundaries, decreased empathy, feelings of isolation, feeling trapped, causing crisis in relationships, loss of creativity. I mean, I really could go on and on. And we probably will touch on some of that more as we go on. But first, let me back up, kind of explain what it is. Secondary traumatic stress occurs naturally when you feel the emotions that result from knowing about a traumatizing event that might have been experienced by another and or the stress of helping a suffering person. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves. And so that's why we're also intersecting this topic with self-care. So how are you doing? <laughs> Listen, I knew you were going to say the word fine, because that's what we do. We say fine. I'm fine. Okay, let me ask you some questions. How are you feeling? Have you noticed feelings of exhaustion? Mm-hmm. And check out? At yes. Do you ever fake empathy? I try not to. Have you ever had the experience or known others who minimize the suffering of others or minimize the suffering of their selves, right? I'm fine. I'm okay. It's all right. Do you ever feel helpless and powerless while still feeling responsible for doing more? Isn't that the entire thing about COVID, right? Like, don't we all feel pretty helpless and powerless through these last couple of years? Also trying to do more. Exactly. Yeah. Or here's one too, that is a tough one, but I see it staying in a bad situation, not, you know, having the energy to change what's not working, whether that be like work, a job or a relationship, that's a tough one. But I think if we sit with that, we have experienced that or know someone who has experienced that. Or here's another one. You might have a sense of grandiosity, like, well, I have to take care of this. I have to do this because if I don't, nobody else is going to. Lots of those are mine, especially that last one. First, I have to stop minimizing my own suffering. I find myself quickly saying, oh, I'm okay. I can do it. I can keep up you know, both internally in my head and also externally to people when they're like, do you need help? It's like, well, I should have asked for help, but of course I need help. I especially need to get over thinking that I'm the only one who could do something or do it right. And that I have to, you know, take on everybody else's stuff. I'm bad at that, Ginger. I'm going to need a lot of help. And let me say that this is not a guilt session, right? Mm -hmm. You will find, as I have found through this journey, that you're not alone, that this is something, you know, pretty common, but I also don't want that to minimize the importance of this because you could be, and our audience could be teetering on the verge of burnout. If several of those from that list spoke to you, that list comes directly from that burnout book and it's a wake up call. So let me also read some of the other symptoms that you'll want to pay attention to and notice intrusive thoughts and memories, avoiding feelings or avoiding children and the feelings that they have feeling anger, depression, feeling numb, withdrawal, difficulty sleeping, irritability, anxiety, and that's not even a complete list. True confession time. I am very intentional about not avoiding my feelings because I know that that can get me in trouble. But the one time that I definitely do that is when I get really, really busy with work. I'm probably a workaholic, but 
I focus on work a lot. It tends to consume me. And when things are really busy, and you know, because things have been really busy at the Attachment and Trauma Network, which is fantastic on the one hand, but then I get into this whole chaotic firefighting busy mode and the negative feelings that start popping up for me don't show up until like the fire's out, right? Like once we get over an event or over a situation where there's a moment for me to take a breather, then my body starts saying to me and my brain is like, "Mm, you're exhausted. You need to rest and all of those things. And you know, sometimes I have a hard time listening to those feelings, right? Yeah. And those feelings are there for a reason. And we don't always necessarily make the association when they're delayed like that. But I want to get to the good news because there really is a lot of things that can be done to prevent burnout, to keep it at bay, and best of all, to heal from it. So that's, you know, what I'm excited to talk about. The need for self-compassion and self-care is really critical, right? We all know that, but this is where I think what I was kind of stumbling on to talk about at the opening here is where I see eyes roll and where I see people, you know, say that they don't have time. I get it because we're all dealing with a really full plate and we are so exhausted, right? It's something that Mm -hmm. is causing us not to heal from this, but it's why we need to heal from this. So Listen, I know you know that it's important and that there may be things preventing. So I want to talk about what self-care truly is because this is where I want to get really serious is that our lives really are on the line. It's not an exaggeration. Ongoing stress causes increase in stress hormones. They build up and if they are not released and attended to, they cause brain damage. They cause body damage. Mm -hmm. They become toxic, causing major physical mental health problems, which leads to decreased life expectancy. So I want to get to what self-care truly is, but let's start out talking about what it's not. It's not about validating instant gratification. Like, you know, you have to hurry and reward yourself to feel better because if we do that, it gets confused with indulgence in material items, you know, like if you want to go out shopping to make yourself feel better, but that's just going to add to it. If we're putting ourselves in debt and relying on external substances to make us feel better. It's also not about venting because even though that can kind of feel good in the moment, it really can lead us to getting stuck and then can also put us in a negative spiral. So You know, it's not about chocolate, bubble baths, retail therapy, pedicures, but I'm also not saying those things are bad. It's just not going to be a long-term fix. So self-care is really more about the nurturing of your body, mind, and spirit. So in order to do that, you have to be reflective and have an awareness and a commitment to taking care of yourself, to the importance of taking care of yourself. And it's about being authentic and honest with what it is that you truly need, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us to think about that and ask for that. So in the moment after the busy events for ATN of this summer, in the moment when I finally stop and listen to what my body is saying, I hear it saying things like, I need a good cry, or 
I need to go take a walk in nature and just listen to the birds and smell the smells or I want to do something playful, something fun, like something interactive with somebody that I'm close to, or, you know, like something that brings me that kind of playful joy. When I think those thoughts, and I think lots of us have those thoughts that we might try to tamp down, you know, depending on when and where we're having them. I think it's important that we honor that, that we give ourselves permission to act on those thoughts, right? And to not judge ourselves by saying, oh, you don't really need that, or we don't really need to take that time, or you're just being foolish or lazy. I mean, like I can have those thoughts almost as quickly as I have the thoughts about what it is that my body and brain really want to happen. It is about listening to what it is you need, and then going ahead and giving yourself that. I love that. Here's what I like to do. And it's not easy, but I think it's very effective. Okay. Think about how you would treat a small child that you just adore. The goal with all these strategies that we're going to be talking about today is for you at the end of the day to recognize you are that child and you can show up for yourself in the same way. And the other thing is that these practices are just that. They're not meant to overwhelm. They're meant to be simple, something that you can do because listen, perfection is impossible. So I just want everyone to pick one or just try. And if you fail, try again. So let's just give full permission for these strategies that we're going to throw out there to be inconsistent or may not resonate or may fail you know, the key is just to start because truly you are worth it. Right. Ginger's about to give us some self-care strategies that are practices we could take up. And by practicing, that means that we're not good at it to begin with. I know I'm not good at a lot of these to begin with. We're just learning and we have to practice them. And sometimes we won't get it right. And sometimes we'll skip one. And sometimes one of them may be better or easier for us at a certain time. But that doesn't mean we can't review this list, these strategies, and come back and try something again, right? Oh, so good. Okay, so let's start off with strategy number one, setting boundaries. And that means that you can say no. You should say no. For teachers, it might mean not working overtime, leaving work at work, asking for help. Utilizing employee assistance programs, getting support from peers. Boundaries are really hard for givers, you know, those who just give, give, give. But it's not impossible to be compassionate to yourself, especially when you're being taken advantage of. Exactly. And I think that this is the crux where the boundary work is. In fact, we talked at a podcast earlier this summer, all the boundary information that we received through Brene Brown's work. Great stuff. Go back and listen. If you didn't listen to that podcast, it's a short one and it's really convicted me. And I can do a lot of things for a lot of different people in a lot of situations. And if I don't feel like I'm being taken advantage of, in other words, if I want to do them, then it's okay. All right. Nobody's crossed my boundary, but if I get a feeling then I need to recognize that feeling and honor it. If I get a feeling that I'm being taken advantage of or that it's just too much 
and I don't act on that, I just say yes anyway, or I don't you know, put up that boundary, then I'm doing something that makes my body feel out of sorts, right? I feel like I'm doing it out of obligation or out of outright coercion or guilt tripping or whatever it is. And that exhausts me, that like takes my energy meter down, right? And the whole time I'm going like, my mind is saying, I didn't really want to do this anyway, or I can't believe I'm here, or this is really aggravating me. And I'm on a fast train to burnout, right? Because I didn't honor what my gut was telling me to begin with. And that was to put up a boundary. Yep, it leads to resentment. So we really need to ask for what we need. And sometimes that takes practice. With my kids, we practice role-playing and that gives them more confidence and strength because it becomes more second nature to them. And we shouldn't necessarily focus on the outcome. It's the expression of the need that is actually the important part, not whether or not you receive it, which is very interesting because I think that's where we get caught up in. It's more about showing yourself and others that you're worth it. Kind of like that you take that first step, you know, that's the brave step of asking for what you need, whether people apply or not. And quite frankly, the first time or two you do it, especially if you're a giver and everybody's expecting you to give, because that's kind of the role that you've taken on in your relationship, get ready for some pushback. Mm. If you've never said no to the people around you, they're going to be surprised when you do, right? She just said no. Many of them can't imagine filling the role that you've been filling, right? So they're going to protest at that. They're like, oh, well, what do you mean you're not going to volunteer to organize the picnic that you've always volunteered to organize like for the last 20 years? It's hard to hold that boundary when they're pushing, they're like arguing, trying to conjole you and whine at you into all of that. And it's okay if you don't hold that boundary, because just like Ginger said, admitting it is one of the most important things that you can do. And it's not about making yourself feel worse if you then give in and go, yeah, okay, I'll do it again. And then you spend your time beating yourself up because you didn't hold that boundary. You took the first important step of admitting that you need to put a boundary there. And the next time around, you're going to be able to put that boundary even stronger because you've just said, I'm as important as everybody else in the rest of the world. That is so good. Yeah, you really can't be compassionate if you aren't compassionate with yourself first. You know, it's the first step to healing shame. We talked a lot about that in our shame podcast. It requires that we give ourselves the understanding rather than ignoring of our pain. And you know, what doesn't work is what we've been doing, telling ourselves it's fine when we're not, because that is denial of suffering. There really is a weight that's lifted when we are honest with ourselves about how we feel. Even if the other people around us don't respond to that in the ways that we would hope that they would, it does lift your pain and your suffering to just be able to tell yourself, you know, this stinks. Totally agree. Okay, let's dive into number two, and that is writing, journaling, reflecting. It could look different you know, for different people, but just getting it out and getting it on paper really is powerful. And so what I like to do, because for some of us, it doesn't come naturally, is to use journal prompts. And so I'm going to give you a journal prompt, kind of like a homework assignment. I want you to try this out. 
write down negative thoughts that you have, and it could be about your job. So pick something that you're having negative thoughts about, whatever it is, any situation basically that brings you stress. So write down those negative thoughts and then write down an alternative thought for each of the negative thoughts. My daughter uses a tool almost exactly like this. And in fact, I found one of her post-it notes this week. She grabs a post-it note and she writes down whatever thought it is that she can't get rid of. She struggles with anxiety and gets stuck on a mm. thought sometimes. And so she writes that down and then right underneath it, she often writes down some gratitude or a statement that often starts, well, at least, you know, and then there'd be something that's an alternative thought that's a little bit more positive. I mean, it may not be a complete turnaround kind of thing, but it really works for her. And then she just sticks those notes places to, you know, remind herself of the at least statement that she does. So it works. I love that. I love that she has made that a practice, you know, that it really works for her. That particular journal prompt encourages a shift in thinking. And most journal prompts will because it's just like you said, we get stuck and our bodies tend to believe what we say, what we write. So we have more power and control than we think we do. And we have to have that shift in thinking that brings us out of that state of stuck. So, you know, that reflection is really important. What writing really does, it just clarifies your thoughts and your emotions. It regulates those big feelings that become really overwhelming it gives you the power back. Sometimes that state of stuck means that it's having control and power over us. So this helps us regain that control back because often what burnout and secondary stress does is makes us feel completely powerless mm -hmm. and out of control. Just occurred to me as you were saying that from a neurobiological standpoint, from a brain standpoint, what's happening is your big feelings are in that midbrain, right? In that yeah. limbic area. And when you are writing about it, you've got to get your thinking brain, your cognition back on track to be able to analyze and write because you can't write without your frontal cortex. That does give you the power back, right? Yeah. It does give you the control back to go through that process. Okay. I love number three. Number three is all about laughter. Man, you are hitting my family's biggest go-to strategy. You know, laughter is our best medicine at the Beam household. I mean, in fact, my husband and I were just talking about this the other night about not only how we love to laugh, but about the importance of laughter to get rid of the stress of our days. In fact, cartoons might actually be our love language because <laughs> our early relationship that, you know, we met each other at work and we sent each other a lot of cartoons. We sent each other far side cartoons in the inner office mail. <laughs> the more tense the situation is in our family, the more likely it is that we'll resort to laughter. I am sure that there have been people who see us using our humor and they don't always think it's so funny. They might even find us irreverent. It's definitely a strategy that we learned from our own parents. I mean, we can look back and see we both came from families of big laughers and we love that and have passed it on to our own children. And nothing gives us more joy than watching our grandchildren tell jokes. Oh my gosh, is that fun? Oh, I love it. 
you and I have a friend named Lorraine who has the best laugh I have ever heard in my life. And her laugh just makes me laugh. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what she's laughing at. I'm going to laugh if she laughs. So It's like infectious, I, isn't it? She lowers our heart rate just listening to her. Yeah. Yep. And you've hit on something really important. And it's the why behind laughter works. It drops pulse rates. It releases endorphins. It increases oxygen. It shifts your biology. And that's what we're talking about as well. So yeah. pretty great. Sometimes we laugh so hard here at the Beam household that we cry. And you know what? That's all good because crying is good too. There's nothing wrong with crying. You can use that as a strategy. I do. I watch sad movies on purpose, but the laughter piece, holy cow. So both of those laughter and tears are release and we need to experience release. Let's move on to strategy number four, which is expressing yourself creativity, create creatively. Creatively. Couldn't hit the word. So get out the paint, get out the clay, sculpting, music, storytelling, theater, whether you're participating in it or watching it, get those creative juices going because they really impact. It helps you tolerate and modulate overwhelming feelings. It encourages the release of big emotions that stay stuck, like we've been talking about. So try something new and creative. It's a different part of our brain that we engage. It's great. It's so important for so many different reasons. I just listened to a webinar from Bessel van der Kolk's folks talking about using Shakespeare. And it was Shakespeare's iambic pentameter that he wrote a verse in mimic our breathing and heart rate. Like how crazy is that? That delivering them with the right breath really helps you. I think about people like Janine McConaughey, who's our board president and resident storyteller, that she has done so much of her own healing journey by telling her story and telling stories. But it also is so great to read her books and listen to her tell stories because being on the listening end of that is good too. And I shared with Ginger that I crochet and that crochet work, not only because I accomplish a piece of something when I make it, it also has a sensory component and a rhythmic component. That's so important for just helping me relax and regulate. A quick story has come to mind, and that's that this summer, one of my kids has had an extra hard time with the lack of structure, the lack of routine, the lack of predictability. And I've been gone a lot this summer traveling for work. And so things have just kind of been a little bit upside down in our house and it's been really hot. We just moved to our new place recently. And all of that has kind of created this perfect storm this summer for one of my kids to be really struggling with some anxiety. And I was worrying that it was gravitating towards depression. And so one day I was trying to help this child figure out something to do or figure out what can I help? What do you need? And they had no answers. They were really stuck and just kind of going down a negative spiral of big emotions. And the thought popped into my head, to do a craft and I am not crafty. (laughs) And so I said, Oh, get in the car. I've got an idea. And we drove to the craft store and they have rows and rows and racks and racks. And it was so fun 
to spend the time looking at every single one. And this child spent time deciding which craft, which craft. Finally, they landed on this. I don't know if it's new, but it's new to me. It's called Diamond Dot. They picked this and for the last like month, that's all they have done and created these beautiful things. And I have seen a huge shift in attitude and in mood and in the whole household because it's given them the opportunity to create something that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. I remember reading about that in one of Brene Brown's books too, the shift that can occur neuroscientifically when we create something that was not there before of our own volition. And I just was shocked at the change. It's something simple that felt overwhelming to me that now has made a big difference. So it brings to mind the people I know who use paint by numbers or puzzles or any number of things where even if you don't think you're creative, like I can't write a song or can't paint a portrait or what we consider super creative you can be really creative with all those other kinds of tools there are things out there that practically do it for you if you're like me (laughs) well or me I do do things like crochet but I definitely don't do things I consider artistic or creative and yet you're absolutely right making something of your own volition is so important Okay, I want to move on to strategy number five, which is rest, making sleep a priority and just making rest a priority. Amelia and Emily Nagoski, what they say is that 42% of your day should be spent resting, which is is impossible, Ginger. That's impossible. We'd have to stop (laughs) this podcast right now and go take naps. That is a shocking number, but they have science behind it. So go, if you're interested, dive into that because listen, (laughs) that blew me away. Listen, I know that's frustrating for a lot of people. We all know we need sleep. We hear it all the time, but somehow for a lot of us, it's a problem and it evades us, even though we're tired, Mm -hmm. right? How many people do you hear say that they are exhausted and they lay down in bed, but sleep still does not come. And then on the flip side, I also know that there are people who, when they do rest, they feel guilty about it. Like that they should be doing other things that they feel are more pressing. Yeah. That's where I fall into that trap. How not to feel guilty when I just take a break, when I just rest, you know, and especially if somebody else in my household is doing something like they're cleaning something or doing, which is wonderful that I have other people besides me that do those things. But if they're still doing the dishes or if something else is happening in the background and I sit down to take a break, man, the your lazy tape plays in my head loudly instead of listening to what my body says there's that and then there's the turning the tape off about all the things that I'm worried about and thinking about that gets in the way of my rest or in some cases of sleep right I get that one of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard was that you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep others warm that's the crux of all of this isn't it yeah that really resonated with me but sleep is medicine And rest can take many forms. Sometimes it's just clearing your head and doing nothing. And I know that that is easier said than done. 
I also know that by me just saying you need more rest, that's not going to happen overnight. See what I did there overnight. (laughs) (laughs) So here's just some ideas. Try one or two of these. Try putting the phone down, right? Before you get into bed, put that phone somewhere else. Turn the TV off five minutes earlier than you normally would. One thing as a therapist that I tell others when we're talking about like, you know, mindfulness, rest, meditation is that you can talk to your brain. You can tell your brain it's time to rest and tell it, thank you for doing all that you did today. And then let it off the hook, give it permission to relax, to recharge because you need it. You're grateful for it. And you want it to be there for you when you do need it. I also really advocate for deep breathing, take some deep breaths. And of course, make sure with every exhale that the exhale is longer than the inhale. I've also, you know, kind of encouraged others to create that blank space where worry is not welcome, that you are going to set the boundary against that worry. It doesn't mean you still may struggle. And I also advocate that there may be times when you need to go visit a doctor. There could be something going on medically, physically with your sleep that you may need a sleep study. You may need to rule out medical concerns, but this is all about making sleep and rest a priority. Yes, for sure. For me, it's always been a lot about setting a routine, like having a wind down routine where I do shut off the TV. I know some people can't live this way, but I don't put my phone in my bedroom on purpose because no matter how much I try to silence it during these podcasts, you know, Ginger, that my phone tends to go off in weird ways and that's going to wake me up. And then I'm going to start thinking about something and that's going to be a problem. That's kind of a hard and fast line that I've drawn around myself that seems to work for me. Well, I love it. You've set that boundary. So there is something you can try, something you can do. Okay, let's move on to strategy number six, which is movement. Now, listen, (laughs) I know that I just told you to rest and I really meant it, but I actually also really mean this too. You can and should do both. Okay, so let's clarify because for some people, as soon as you hear the word exercise, that's going to turn them off. So I love in the burnout book, how they explicitly come out and say, exercise is not for everyone, but movement is, and there's different ways to get at, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can try. There's so many options in the burnout book. There's a lot of ideas that they give. We could give ideas here if we had time, but just don't limit yourself to getting in a box where you think that you need to run a marathon. Cause that's not what I'm talking about here. Anything that moves your body enough to get you breathing more deeply. And so if you want to know how often, well, how often do you experience stress? So what do you do for movement, Ginger? What do you like? Okay. I'll tell you this before we moved, I was in this incredibly awesome habit of water walking with my girlfriends. We would drop the kids off at school and go to our local pool and water walk. It served many purposes. It served the movement physical purpose, but oh boy, did we chat and vent and solve the world's problems. (laughs) It was so awesome. And I really miss that. We moved during the pandemic and then the pool was closed and now I'm in a different routine and I don't have my old girlfriends. And so I want to sit with that, Julie, and think about that because now that I am out of routine, I know what a healing 
thing it did for me and how I'm missing it now and need to find something new to fill that space. Well, and it's so simple. The movement, I'm not an exercise person. In fact, I feel like I have to draw a boundary around exercise because somebody wants me to exercise and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. But movement is so important. We, like I shared with you earlier, have dance parties in our kitchen. We did when the kids were little. And now it's just, I'm a solo dancer when I'm prepping dinner because there are no kids in my house to dance around. But that was our release time. We'd turn the music up really loud and just have a little party. And it felt good relationally. But sometimes we were breathing pretty heavily because depending on what we were playing, you know, that uptown funk does it to you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the really quick things I have been doing with my husband lately is yoga because he loves yoga and he's so good at it. And he found on YouTube, 10 minute yoga practices. And I thought, okay, what excuse do I have not to do it 10 minutes? So that's been working good for us. You know, movement is best. Here's why it's so crucial. Why it is really, truly the best is because it's the most efficient way to release those stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. I've talked before about how those build up in the system and how dangerous they are if they're not released. We have to release them. And so movement is the most efficient way to do that. And if you've ever heard anything from Dr. Bruce Perry, he talks a lot about how important repetitive movement is, rhythmic movement, and how it really regulates emotions. So a lot to learn from him there. Well, and when you were saying that just now, I thought it's important to put a little punctuation mark here into why it's important for our kids too. When kids are feeling antsy in the classroom, they need to get up and move. If they've had a big negative emotion event, you know, whatever it is, whether it's Diane Carreri's wall push-ups, whether it's, you know, taking a walk, like that's why it works is it releases those brain chemicals so efficiently. When you get mad at your boss and you just take a water cooler moment and just like go, you know, walk to the water cooler or walk around the outside of the building or whatever, that's why that works. You're releasing those toxins. And why recess is so important in schools and should never be taken away or used as a punishment. The brain science is clear on that one. We all need the recess and the dance parties and the the water walking. We do. Okay. Strategy seven is one of my favorites too. And that's social interaction. Because as you know, if you've listened to this podcast and we talk about attachment a lot, it's all about connection, right? you got to find your people, your sisterhood, your brotherhood, the people who are your true friends, the ones that you can be vulnerable and authentic with, and the ones that will hold you accountable too. And then use them for the self-care aspect that they are, right? Laugh with them, move with them. Ginger just gave us an example of that and share with them the deep, dark, scary stuff so that you can get it out, right? The connection is a strategy. It's a self-care strategy. We need it. We were wired for it. It's how we were biologically built. The only way that we're really going to heal is not in isolation because the loneliness just makes things worse, right? Loneliness is a form of starvation. And if what we need is to fill ourselves back up, then we need people to do that. And the self-care requires a bubble of protection from those 
who value us, right? Who see us as that child that Ginger was talking about at the beginning. It's not about quantity of friends. It's more about quality and depth of relationship that we're talking here. Like one good friend is worth their weight in gold. And that's a lot of the values that the Attachment and Trauma Network has been founded on the importance of that support, the support for the people who are trying to support the children, whether we're parents and caregivers, whether we're educators, whether we're other folks who work with children who really need that extra support. We need that support from like-minded and like-hearted people, people who get it, people who are willing to be in relationship with you. And when you know that you're not alone, then you can take on a whole lot more, right? That's one of the things we consider a hallmark of the culture here at ATN. We're serious about it. You know, just to get the support from the people who will support you. And if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I feel so all alone and nobody gets what it's like to have a child like mine or to teach these children that are coming from hard places, we get it. And we would be happy to connect you with the people in our network to support. You know, we have people right here at ATN that can help you there. I want to share this story. This is probably my most favorite story about self-care and when it really hit home for me. And so, okay, last year, you and I, Julie, had the honor and privilege of speaking at the same conference as Nadine Burke Harris, who is, my gosh, my hero. Now, let me just say, it was a virtual conference, so, you know, it was during the pandemic, so I was hoping and wanting to see her in person, but didn't get that opportunity, but she told this story that has just really impacted with me and stayed with me. She was the Surgeon General of California when the pandemic hit, so can you even imagine how overwhelmed she felt, overworked, overstressed, and you know, in a pandemic that who knows how long it was going to last. No one knew. So anyway, she said that one day in the middle of all of this, her daughter approached her and said, mommy, you lost your giggle. And for her, that was just a really big wake up call. She explained that, you know, for those of us who are in helping professions, just that job alone takes a huge toll. And then, of course, if you add to it a pandemic or any other stressful event, that the need for self-care increases, but more than not gets thrown out the window because it's crisis and we just have to survive. Even though we need it more, we get it less. She was saying, you know, that overused metaphor of when you're on an airplane and they say, put the oxygen mask over your face before you put it on the child. And she was like, give me a break, you know, forget the oxygen mask. What you need as a parent, as a caregiver, as a teacher is scuba gear with several full tanks of oxygen and a whole dive team. You need a plan tools, resources, equipment, training, and most of all, a ton of support. And then she paused and she said, please don't put yourself at risk. Don't go underwater alone. Don't lose your giggle. And oh my gosh, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget her words and her sincere, authentic plea to all of us. And you know why she's my hero? I mean, a million reasons, but I'll tell you this. 
She walks the walk. She resigned from that huge, amazing job shortly after because she had to go in search of her giggle. Wow. Right. And so I can't wait to see what her next steps are because she's one that I will follow. And it made me think, how about me? How about you? What are our next steps? Wow, Ginger, you're so right. I mean, that story really drives home the point that secondary traumatic stress is an important thing for us all to be aware of, to really think about, to work on strategies and reduce our own levels of stress. We have to. It's crucial. It's life or death, really. We have to be full if we're going to pour into the children that we deeply care for. And I know I know the people out there listening are thinking the same things that we are, that they really do want to pour into these children, but they got nothing left to give, right? You can't pour from an empty cup. I am definitely going to go back over this list and try some of the strategies I haven't tried before and to keep working really hard on things like setting boundaries and on giving myself permission to rest because those are things I particularly struggle with. For the rest of you, we want to leave you with one of our favorite quotes from Brene Brown because we think it just ties us up so nice. You cannot be courageous without self-care. You cannot express compassion for others without self-compassion. There it is. Go take care of yourselves because we need you and we'll catch you next time. As we start back to school this fall, we know that this year has many of the same challenges of last school year. We see you and all you're juggling and trying to create for this new school year. Managing behaviors is likely at the top of your list. If it is, please join us for Compliance to Compassion, our one-day virtual event that the Attachment and Trauma Network is co-sponsoring with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. It's a full day of professional development learning on Friday, October 14th, and will be headlined by Alfie Cohn, the author who you may know from his book, Punished by Rewards. We're going to learn from some of the leaders of the trauma-informed school movement, including Jim Sporleader himself, as well as Principal James Moffat and Diane Carreri, co-author of The Reset Process. And maybe some experts not as familiar to you, Dr. Stuart Shanker and Susan Hopkins of the MEHRIT Center in Canada and their work on self-regulation, and Emma Vanderclift and Norman Kunk of the Broad Reach Training and Resources and their work in de-escalation strategies and collaborative problem solving. Registration is open and the link is on ATN's website and in these show notes. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Next time, Ginger and Julie will be talking to two educators, James Moffitt, elementary principal, and Sandra Lake, STEAM coordinator, about their hopes and challenges as they embark on a new school year. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.